Well, I want to begin with a question today. And I was a history major in college, so I'm really intrigued at some of the answers you might have for me today. Um, so I want to ask this question. What causes one army to surrender to another during a battle or maybe even at the end of the war? What are the factors that cause that to happen? Pretty simple question. Yes. What's that? Motivation. Like they've lost motivation? Okay. Not motivated to fight anymore? Okay, good. Casualties? Yeah, they're just bleeding, bleeding out, right? Yeah. Yeah, if they don't surrender, then maybe their whole town or, you know, yeah, a bigger territory will be taken over anyways. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Just a shortage? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you can just look at, the, I mean, everything, food, <laughs> ammunition, you know, you'd be running out of things and you just know that like the writing's on the wall here, right? Good. So it's just kind of an acknowledgement of defeat. Now, there's some important aspects when you're considering surrendering. One of those, <laughs> a very important one, um, is who you're surrendering to. So if you're surrendering to a tyrant, like in World War II, if you're surrendering to Hitler's army or Stalin's army, and you're thinking, well, they might just kill us or torture us or send us to a concentration camp, you might think to yourself, Maybe we'll just fight to the death <laughs> because the alternative doesn't sound that great because you know the character and the nature of who you're surrendering to. On the other hand, if you're surrendering to a more humane or benevolent leadership or country who you think, God, if we surrender, they might actually like treat our wounded <laughs> and feed us and at least be somewhat decent towards us, it becomes a little bit more of an appealing option. So who you're surrendering to is critical. And the conditions are usually tied to the character of their leader. Okay? So the past several months, we've been taking a look at God's self-description. How does God talk about himself? And in Exodus 34, it's really the first time um, in the Old Testament where God specifically says, like, this is who I am and what I'm like. And in Exodus 34, he said a couple things we've been looking at the last several months. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. In fact, God doesn't just feel love on an emotional level like we do. Scripture tells us that God is love. It's not just something that he does, it's, it's who he is. It's his nature. Love naturally flows and overflows out of him. And because of that, there's some really tremendous implications for us as the objects of his love. Okay? Primarily, there's the promise we see in Psalm 103. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. It says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That ought to cause us to kind of pause for a moment. 
we deserve something other than God's love. And I want to drill down on that a little bit more today. <clears throat> We're going to stay kind of in the big picture realm uh, here again today um, before we start drilling down into some specific Jesus stories of interactions with, with people in the Gospels here in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to stay at a, at a high level today because I think there's some really critical things that we still need to continue to wrap our minds around, if we can, <laughs> at whatever level with God's love. I don't know about your personal experience, but seventh grade was a pretty kind of a rude awakening for me. Uh, it was when I, I started at Liberty Junior High, and it was, you know, five elementary schools from all over town coming together as one class for the first time. And so if you've been in that place in your own life, you know that there's this, you know, you're trying to figure out desperately how to fit in on the popularity pecking order those first, you know, few weeks and months of seventh grade. And so I had some disadvantages that I had to face. I mean, I was a, a pretty good student, but definitely not the brightest. I was a, a decent looking guy, at least that's what I told myself when I looked in the mirror, right? But I probably wasn't the most handsome kid in the class. I um, didn't really have the money. I mean, back then, like to be popular cost money because you had to wear certain brands and you couldn't buy those things at TJ Maxx. Like you had to go to Dillard's, right, to get an IZOD or some Nike Corky Cortez shoes back in 1982, right, when I was coming up through the ranks. So it cost a little bit to be, uh, you know, you, you're, you dressed according to your social status, I guess is what I would say. So I didn't really have that going for me either. Um, and I was the shortest kid in the entire grade. So I had small man's complex as well. And with all that in mind, <clears throat> I had to play the one card that I had going for me. And that was that I was funny. Now, that sounds great, but in order to like keep your funny rep, you have to be funny and goof around a lot, okay? And so in class, I meant that I kind of had to choose my moments to cut up and which meant that I drew a fair amount of attention from my seventh grade teachers. And I literally had like one of the least funny group of teachers you could assemble at Liberty Junior High. Nobody appreciated the fabulous comedic relief of Bobby Miller circa 1981, okay? And they just didn't have a lot of tolerance for this punk little kid interrupting their class. So needless to say, I got a lot of a detentions in seventh grade, a lot. And to be honest, looking back, I kind of deserved it, right? And then irony of ironies, I taught seventh grade for years, okay? So, but I deserved it, no doubt. And that's how life works most of the time. We do something out of line, and a lot of times we kind of expect some consequences to happen as a result. We know we've been playing with fire a little bit here, and it's going to catch up to us at some point. And that brings us to our passage today. I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 1665. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, Paul 
is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So this is a sobering account of our situation, isn't it? Every one of us was dead in our transgressions and sins. That is the natural state of every human born into this world. Transgressions and sins, and other translations use the word trespasses instead of transgressions. And so to trespass means to step over a line, right? You see signs that say no trespassing, right? And so in order to trespass, you have to kind of step into that restricted place. And so there's a a spirit of rebelliousness that goes along with that idea of trespassing. So we were dead in our rebelliousness and our failure, right? The real word of of the meaning of the word sin is to miss the mark, to fail in hitting your target. We were dead. Not I've, I've made a few mistakes or, yeah, I've messed up a little bit or I, I've got some things I could work on. We were dead without hope, powerless in our strength to change this death sentence that we deserved. And the Bible describes our deadness in a lot of different ways. At different times, it says that, that those that are apart from Christ are blind. They're slaves to sin a lover of darkness, they're sick, lost, an alien and stranger, under the power of darkness, and here in verse 3, deserving of wrath. Verse 2 that we just read says that the spirit of the devil was at work in those who were disobedient. So it's like the powers of hell were doing an inside job on us and our souls. Dane Ortland, who wrote the book Gentle and Lowly, I owe a lot of credit to this week because he had a great chapter on, on this passage of Scripture. He said this. He said, sin was not something we lapsed into or kind of came upon haphazardly. He says it defined our moment-by-moment existence at the level of deed, word, thought, and yes, even desire. We were in a much worse condition than we could have even realized. And you see, in order for the reality of God's abounding love to fully impact our hearts, we have to come back to this foundational truth on a daily basis that like the rest, we were all deserving of wrath. Every one of us. And if we don't appreciate how bad it was, we won't appreciate how good it could be. We'll take his grace and love for granted and treat it as such. Because here's the deal, all the while that we were dead, God was giving us breath, making our heart beat, giving us a mind that could think and create, and we had skills and abilities to have a job and earn a living. We had relationships that we could enjoy 
beauty in this world that he provided us, kindness upon kindness given to us in our dead state. And we all took those things for granted. Like we deserved anything to begin with. God says we were deserving of wrath. Now I want to ask you guys a question. We're going to put it up here. <clears throat> what did you think you deserved in this life? And where did you get that idea? So I want you to think kind of just growing up, childhood, your teenage years, your young adult years. What did you think you deserved in this life? And where did you get that idea? Let's just be honest today. Yeah. So, calling every single New Year's, uh, I told myself, you know, that I deserved nothing. Like, and, and I was just a prisoner to my own thoughts. Um, and I think it was a lot of everything I ever went through. Um, I don't know. Like I said, it was just me being a prisoner of my own thoughts and telling myself I wasn't good enough for anything and not worthy of any certain love where God was. Okay. Love, you know? Yeah. So, his, his story was that he just felt like he didn't deserve God's love. Didn't deserve anything. Yeah, that's definitely one side of that coin, for sure. What else? Yeah. Uh, I feel like for me, it was probably around kindergarten age and hearing about the U.S. government and that's what we're supposed to have to love and have compassion for. Okay, so as he's talking about kindergarten for the first time he heard about kind of like the U.S. government and the Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that, that everybody's supposed to just kind of have this good life, and it's supposed to be fairly comfortable, and okay, yeah. I guess growing up, I felt no one person could have it, that it was almost like a contract. If you do all the right things and you act good enough, that you're just going to have a good life, mm -hmm. that things are going to work out. I mean, like, my parents kind of reinforced that, be a good person, good things will happen. Yeah. Church really kind of reinforced that. Yeah. So kind of this, yeah, this American dream narrative that if you do the right things, check the boxes, life should turn out a certain way, you should get the, you should be able to reap the benefits of all your hard work, right? Get a good job, whatever, you know, the house with the picket fence, right? And sometimes it's, 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 it's maybe hard to even pinpoint, like, it's just so sewn into the fabric of our culture, right? Uh, maybe we can say, I think somewhere in school or maybe at home or maybe sometimes even in church, these ideas came along, right? It's an interesting thing to, to think about, what we feel like we deserve. Verse 1 to 3 that we're looking at here in chapter 2 deals with our problem. Our problem is that we were all born with this desire, these cravings to gratify our flesh, follow its desires and thoughts, right? Not a God-oriented perspective, but a self-oriented perspective. Verse 5 to 7 that we're going to get to in a minute is going to talk about God's solution to that problem. Verse 4 gives us the why. We were all deserving of wrath, but, let's look at verse 4. 
But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, but because of his, his great love for us, God. And it's obviously unmerited. We hadn't done anything to change the situation on our own. God just intervenes into the midst of our broken story with his unbelievable love for us. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us to make us lovable. God who is rich in mercy, nowhere else in scripture does it say that God is rich in anything. That word is reserved as an adjective for his mercy. This is a great definition of mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. <clears throat> God is rich in his compassion and forgiveness. His mercy is overflowing. It's abundant. It's profuse. <laughs> it's who he is. His mercy is inexhaustible. There's no end to it. Micah 7.18 says that God delights to show mercy. He delights to treat us in a way that we don't deserve. I want you to think about that. He delights to treat you in a way that you don't deserve. I don't know about you, but, but most often I'm pretty begrudging to extend mercy to others. If there was a verse about me, it would say, Bob, stingy in mercy. Because I want people to do something to deserve any compassion I might extend to them. So I don't like feeling taken advantage of. Let's be honest. The contrast between my own love and God's is stark. Ortland, again in his book, he said it like this. There's a slide up here. It says, God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through this life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. So you need to think of it as like kind of like a bank vault, right? And each one of us at a bank has this mercy bank vault. And every time we screw up, we go to the bank and we take out some mercy. And in our minds, we're thinking, well, that vault has got a limited supply. And as we take withdrawals, all of a sudden, at one some point, there's going to be no more mercy left. When in fact, the reality is, is that every time you take a withdrawal out, God puts more mercy in. Your account grows. It's the exact opposite of how everything in the world works. It reminds me of Romans 5.20. It says this, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Like the reason why we got the Ten Commandments wasn't as a list of rules for us to follow. It was so that we would realize we couldn't do it. And so that the trespass might actually increase. But where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. The reason that the law was given to us was to show us that we can't do it. So that God could then be gracious to us when we come to the realization where we throw up the white flag and say, I can't win this battle. And God was like, exactly. That's why I'm coming. In God's economy, we can't out his mercy and love for us. There's no line in the sand where he's just like, I'm done with you. I've exhausted all of my mercy resources on you. I can't do it anymore. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You realize, guys, that there is no God like our God, right? No other religion in the world is preaching this message with this kind of God. It's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. A God who actually draws more near to us, the greater our sin and shame and weakness. It doesn't repulse him. His mercy kicks in and he moves closer to us. We deserved wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Look at verse 5. Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Guys, I, I can hardly read that passage without weeping anymore. Literally. I'm sitting at my desk this week writing this message, reading that verse, and tears are just rolling down my face. Who am I? That he would love me like that. Guys, we deserve wrath. That is a strong word. It means strong or fierce anger or fury. But instead, through no merit of our own, we who were dead were made alive in Christ. And when did he make us alive? When we came clean and confessed it all and made a bunch of changes to make us worthy of it? No, right in the midst of our mess. Before we made any changes and to prove we were sorry. In his great love, his nail-pierced hands are reaching out to us with offers of mercy and grace to pull us out of the pits that we dug for ourselves. And all we have to do in our desperation is just take hold of his hand and let him rescue us. 
And in that moment, as John writes in John 5, 24, we crossed over from death to life. This great exchange takes place. And in a moment, we go from dead to living. But guys, here's the, the scandalous part of the gospel. The crazy part is this, is that there's more. There's more. We already didn't deserve to be saved, but God doesn't stop there. Remember, he delights in his mercy. It's like those old 70s and 80s game shows, right? But that's not all. Why don't you tell them what else they've won, Bob? Verse 6, it says that in that moment of salvation, our eternal souls are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. How? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says this, whoever is united with Christ is one with him in spirit. Okay? When we begin a relationship with him, we become one with Christ in spirit, okay? And so basically what that means is wherever Jesus is, our spirit is. So if you've surrendered your life to Christ as your Savior and Lord, your eternal spirit is in heaven with Christ right now, seated with him. Our future reality is already true in God's eyes, because God operates outside of time. Who we're going to be one day in his presence is already a reality. He can see it now. He sees the glorified, holy, and blameless us currently. <laughs> and so that starts to give us some insight into why God abounds in love for us. Because God adores his son by proxy he adores us because we are in him. He already sees us as we're going to be. Do we have any clue what actually transpired when we said yes to Jesus? I don't even think we've scratched the surface on what it means that we inherited all of the riches like a son of a king a daughter of a king. I don't even think we scratch the surface of what happened to us in that moment. <laughs> and why did he make us alive? Save us, raise us up to heaven with Jesus. Look at verse seven again. Why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We, who at one point were his enemy, reveling in our sin and debauchery, our self-glorification, deserving of wrath, we are the ones, he says, I can't wait to show you my incomparable riches to just shower you with kindness. I don't have words for this. <laughs> it's
It's like the, the song that we sing, um, you know, you love me as you find me. It has that line that says, and that part just wrecks me. And I know every time I sing that song, like when I say those words, it's like I can hardly keep it together. We ought to be wrecked by the love of God because it is outrageous. Has it wrecked you? I think about Isaiah, right? When he sees God, his eyes behold God and he says, I am wrecked. I am undone. Nothing we have done, are doing, or will do can separate us from the love of Christ. It wasn't based on our performance when he saved us. It's not going to be based on how good of a Christian we were when he glorifies us in heaven. Friends, God is standing at the door of your heart today begging you to receive his mercy and his love. He wants to lavish on you the incomparable riches of, your gra of his grace because that's who he is and because you're that precious to him. Surrender. Open your heart and hands to receive it today whether you've never known him or you've known him for a while, our need for his touch never changes. And every day we need to recount the story of the gospel. We need to tell it to ourselves again. How dead we were. What we rightfully deserved. But what we got and continue to get instead. Because we will never appreciate his abounding love unless we first appreciate how desperate our condition was apart from him. We have to get that first, or his love won't, won't hit us like it should. It won't wreck us. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a mess today. I want to share with you just a, a passage from this book that I thought was really powerful as we kind of wrap things up this morning. It says, perhaps you have difficulty receiving the rich mercy of God in Christ, not because of what others have done to you, but because of what you've done to torpedo your life, maybe through one big stupid decision, or maybe through 10,000 little ones. You have squandered his mercy, and you know it. To you I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. Whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret, listen to this, <laughs> are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. 
It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. We have no idea how deep the well of his abounding love and rich mercy is for us. And remember at the start of this message, I said it's important for us to consider the character of the leader that we're surrendering to. Much like the conquered armies throughout history, we are surrounded. We're out of resources, devoid of hope. We've pulled out every trick to keep the battle against God going, but we're tired of fighting. We're desperate for relief. And our kind, compassionate, loving, gracious, rich in mercy, Heavenly Father, who's been taking our bullets and blows for years, waits just outside the walls and the trenches that we've put up to keep him away. And he looks at us and he says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Put my yoke on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's the leader we're surrendering to. So drop your weapons so your hands can be empty to receive the love that he longs to shower on you today. And guys, as we close today, I want to ask you to do something a little different. Those of you that are able and have the ability, I just want to ask us all to just get on our knees as we pray. If you can squeeze your way into those pews, onto your knees, you can come out in the aisle, you can come up front. But I'm just going to close this. I think it's really important sometimes that our body reflects the posture of our heart. And I don't know about you, but like going through this passage again, it just wrecks me, his love for me. And I need to get in touch with that. So one of the ways I'm going to do is I'm going to get on my knees. You can join me if you want. You can sit. You can do whatever. Heavenly Father, God, we don't have words for your love. I, it's been so hard to just even write these messages, <laughs> trying to describe a God that is abounding and just limitless and gives us the opposite of what we deserve, 
moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment of our life. A God who delights in men, who finds joy in giving us the opposite of what we've earned. And God, there is no category for that in, in, human, <laughs> in human civilization. God, you are holy and other. And God, that's why you're worth our life. You're worth every, every day, every dollar, every gift, every ability, every song, all the time we have, all the resources that we have, everything should be to worship and give back to you the glory and the honor and the praise that you deserve because we've received something that we can never earn on our own. And God, I don't know where people in this audience today are at in terms of how that message has wrecked them. But God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to meet us here this morning and just be poured out in a way where we could not leave this room without it emotionally stirring us. This is not just information and knowledge about you. It is something to be experienced and felt at the very core of who we are as human beings that you created in your image. And God, as you wept, as you walked this earth, God, sometimes we need to weep as we understand and are recipients of this unbelievable love that you've given us. God, help us to not be um, so self-deprecating and think so little of ourselves that we can't receive your love. God, and help us to not think so much of ourselves that we think we don't need it. Help us to be in that sweet middle ground where we can just be humble and say, thank you. God, pour it out on me, the incomparable riches of your goodness. God, we love you. God, I pray that we would sing this next song like we've never sung it before, that the truth of this reality of your love for us would just hit us in a way that would leave us changed. Pray these things in the precious son of your name of your son, Jesus Christ, who made it all possible in the cross. There was a cost to this love, Lord. Help us remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.